heads and welcome to a special American prestige where Derek and I, but mostly Derek, is going to give uh, a little bit of an update on what's going on in Ukraine. Um, should you be freaking out? Should you not be freaking out? Why is everyone freaking out? Uh, et cetera, et cetera. So why don't we just get right into it, Derek? So uh, so Derek, maybe you could just literally explain to people what has happened in the last 14 days, because many have probably noticed that there appears to be a ramping up of um, American, uh, what I would likely call um, threat inflation or exaggeration, but what just literally what has happened? Yeah. So, I mean, people should probably, I assume, know that since uh, around November, uh, the Russian military has been building up assets in southwestern Russia. Uh, They've moved units into Belarus for ostensibly for military exercises. They've put ships in the Black Sea and the Azov Sea. They've put units in the Crimea, and all of these units have been sort of surrounding Ukraine, basically, and uh, not completely obviously encircling it but but kind of massing on the borders and conducting exercises and generally just looking very menacing this is similar to something the russians did earlier last year and they within a few weeks drew everybody down and sent them all back to barracks this time it's lasted for several months now and the united states has been warning particularly over the last couple of weeks but for some time now about the possibility of a russian invasion of ukraine we can get into the whole sort of story of that if you want. Uh, But but the upshot is, uh, as Danny said, over the last couple of weeks, the warnings have gotten more and more serious, uh, even as there have been more and more attempts at diplomacy and interchanges between foreign ministers. Emmanuel Macron and Boris Johnson have been calling Vladimir Putin. Joe Biden has had a couple of phone calls with him, apparently to no avail, at least as far as the United States is concerned. So what's happened, the reason that we're doing this update on Thursday, Friday, U.S. time, this probably started Wednesday evening, the Biden administration has been suggesting that a Russian attack had come within days. Uh, Antony Blinken, last week while he was out with the uh, Quad foreign ministers, the gang was meeting, I think, in Australia, uh, said something to this effect, and it kicked off a whole rise of, you know, kind of raised eyebrows and panic and worry. There's no explanation why the administration thinks that an attack could come within days. Uh, This is one of those things where they do well. The intelligence community has determined, uh, which basically means trust us. We can't tell you, but you have to have to trust us. The conclusion that they've drawn for whatever reason is that Putin, they felt, had been waiting until at least the end of the Winter Olympics in Beijing uh, before he would undertake an invasion. Now they think he's likely to, to undertake one Before the Olympics end, and now as we're recording this on Sunday, the 13th, there's a Reuters story that's obviously been planted by the administration that says senior officials won't confirm, senior U.S. officials uh, could not confirm reports that U.S. intelligence indicates that Russia is planning to invade Ukraine on Wednesday. So they've now even decided on a day 
when this is supposedly going to happen. But of course, they do this. They leak it out to the press, and then the press comes back and asks, and they deny it. They say, well, you know, we can't confirm any of that. So this is how the the game is played. But that's where things stand. A lot of uh, countries have emptied out their embassies, or at least emptied their embassies of uh, non-essential personnel over the, the past couple of days. The United States has been withdrawing a number of diplomats. It's essentially, I think, at this point, closed the embassy in Kiev. It is operating most of the what's left of the U.S. consular mission in Ukraine out of Lviv, which is in the far west and is less likely to be uh, immediately targeted in an invasion were one to happen. And yeah, another, a number of other countries have pulled staff out. The Ukrainians, for their part, haven't even closed their airspace. They're still saying, you know, this is really harmful to us that you keep um, sounding these panic notes about an invasion. And these, life seems to be going as normal or as close to normal as possible as far as the Ukrainians are concerned. The United States has also withdrawn its personnel from the uh, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe mission, which is supposed to be monitoring the ceasefire around Ukraine's Donbass region, which has been in revolt or, well, it's seceded basically after the 2014 Euromaidan revolution. That secession has not been recognized by anybody, but they consider themselves to be independent of Ukraine. There's been a conflict that's sort of frozen around that region for several years now. OSCE has a team that's monitoring it. The United States has now withdrawn its personnel from that again, ostensibly in fear of an invasion. Uh, what's interesting about that, I guess, is that OSCE is supposed to monitor ceasefire violations by either side, whether the Ukrainians or the Russians go first. The U.S. has been suggesting that Russia would stage some kind of false flag operation in the Donbass to blame on Ukrainian military to justify an invasion. Well, the U.S. is pulling out its monitors that would be able to check and see what, what really is going on there. So that's that's somewhat interesting. Okay, so that's basically the long and short of what's been going on. But let's take a step back because a lot of people will argue um, that Putin's going to invade because of what happened in Georgia and what happened in Crimea. So could you maybe say just very briefly what happened in those two situations and why you think um, the situation today is analogous or why you think it's not analogous? Sure. So, I mean, Crimea is the obvious place to start because Crimea is still under international law, considered part of Ukraine. That goes back to the 2014 Euromaidan protests, which I uh, referenced a little bit earlier. There's a very good piece by a friend of the pod, actual friend of the pod, Branko Marchetic, <laughs> uh, in Jacobin from, I think, last week, actually, at this point. It's been a few days. But, uh, you know, recapping Euromaidan and, and kind of unpacking some of the propaganda that People in the West, I think, were fed uh, about Euromaidan uh, and the nature of those protests. But the upshot is that in 2014, there was a protest movement against then-Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych, uh, who was viewed as basically a, a, a Putin proxy, in a sense. Uh, it's much more complicated than that. He was really not as sort of enthralled to Russia as I think you know a lot of the reporting suggested, and as, as people sort of sum up today. He was pro-Russia in the context of Ukrainian politics, but he was still, you know, he's not a, an agent of Moscow or whatever. Anyway, uh, the Euromaidan protest over Yanukovych's decision under a good deal of actually arm-twisting from Russia to back out of a free trade agreement with the European Union. The protesters took to the streets, you know, about 
If you look at polling from that time, maybe half the country, I think the polling was like 48% supported the protest, 46% didn't. So it wasn't a mass movement necessarily, but a, a, a large plurality, let's say, maybe of the population was angered by this decision to back out of the free trade agreement. And so they protested in Kiev. Yanukovych didn't respond very well to that. He sent his security forces out, and they treated the protesters somewhat brutally. The protesters retaliated with violence. There was a strong far-right paramilitary contingent, I think, that that seized on these protests to exercise its, its grievances with Yanukovych. They got very violent. There were clashes between armed protesters and police. A lot of people, a number of people died. And eventually, Yanukovych's position became so unstable that he fled the country. He was overthrown, fled the country, and the protesters moved in and installed a, a new government. In the midst of all of this, after Yanukovych left, the Russians uh, moved, I think, special forces sort of, uh, you know, covertly uh, into Crimea. They seized the region, which is the, the part of Ukraine that really resonates for Russia, both in a strategic level and, I think, uh, you know, sort of a nationalist kind of uh, appealing to the Russian spirit or whatever sort of level. So they, they seized Crimea. Uh, the Russian parliament has subsequently, over the last several years, you know, shortly after this, really, uh, annexed Crimea in a, in a move that is not recognized internationally. It led to a lot of sanctions, but it is basically Crimea uh, is, for all practical purposes now, a part of Russia. Why is this situation similar or why is it different than what happened in 2014? And then we'll go back right. to Georgia. Well, and I mean, it all stems from what, what happened in 2014. That's when the Donbass uh, revolt began. That's when the civil war began. The Russians funneled aid to the, the Donbass region, which is very pro, kind of, you know, filled with Russian speakers, people who identify um, ethnically or, or, you know, sort of um, communally with Russia more than they do with sort of the western parts of Ukraine that look more toward the west and Poland and Europe. So the Russians sent aid to these people. They sent weapons to support them. And that created this situation that's kind of been frozen ever since and is the pretext uh, for what's happening right now. What doesn't make sense to me about this talk of an, an invasion is why now? Like the seizure of Crimea, and people point to this as the precursor to what Russia might do now. That was a, an incident of pure reaction. That was a, a political event that took place in Kiev that upended Russian plans. They moved in response to that to take Crimea because, again, it was the play, you know, the one part of Ukraine that they really cared the most about. There's been no precipitating action here. And I think when people talk about Vladimir Putin as though he's some uh, world historical arch-villain genius, they attribute things to him. They attribute a level of foresight or planning that, that is not always necessarily apparent by, by his actions. So he, he tends, in the Crimea situation, he was reacting to something that happened in Ukraine. Here, he would be invading Ukraine, I guess proactively is the word I want to use. I don't know if that makes any sense, but there's no precipitant action here, it seems to me, other than he's concerned about Ukraine joining NATO, but there's been no move in that direction. That's why I tend to think he's he's been doing this, he's been massing these forces and sort of uh, making this show of force as a way to force a diplomatic discussion, not as a as an actual intent to to go in. But that's you know that's my 
Uh, That's speculation. We we could always be wrong. And why don't we end on Georgia in 2008? Because NATO was also very important to the Russo-Georgian War of 2008. So, Derek, maybe you could just, again, explain what that was and how it does or doesn't compare to what's going on right now. Yeah, so the war in Georgia, and and there are some parallels between what happened in the Russo-Georgian War and the the Donbas situation specifically, not so much Crimea, but but the Donbas. There are two regions in Georgia, the regions of South Ossetia and Abkhazia, that again, kind of like the Donbas, are 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 very attuned, I guess, or, or sort of Russian-facing in terms of their populations. The Russian government has fed this, as they've done in the Donbass, through means like giving the people in those regions Russian passports and giving them Russian citizenship. And that's one of the ways that they kind of keep these in countries that are of interest to them. They keep uh, certain segments of the population on sides because it gives them a political lever into uh, you know what's sort of going on. As in Ukraine, Georgia was subject to a sort of political revolution. You can call it a color revolution in 2004-2005. It's called the Rose Revolution, a fairly Russian-friendly government uh, under Edward Shevardnadze, who was a former foreign minister of the Soviet Union, was ousted. A man named Mikhail uh, Saakashvili, who you may be familiar with because he's been all over the place ever since, came to power. And and this is, uh, you know, like there was the Orange Revolution in Ukraine, for example, in 2004-2005. These color revolutions are are one of the things that the Russians kind of go on about when they say that they're they they think that the West is meddling in in Russia's you know playground basically, so there were concerns all the way back in sort of two thousand three two thousand four two thousand five uh, on Russia's part about you know sort of Western meddling uh, in Georgia and they seized on these uh, couple of pockets of pro Russia ethnic populations as a way to uh, kind of maintain a lever on Georgian politics. Uh, What happened, basically, there was, you know, a lot of tension between these two regions that wanted to secede, maybe, you know, eventually become annexed by Russia, wanted to secede certainly from Georgia, acted as though they were autonomous, if not outright independent. The tension between those regions and those regional, the governments that the separatist movement set up, and the Georgian government grew to the point where in early August 2008, things devolved into outright conflict. Now, you can there are arguments about who fired the first shots. It seems likely that in a technical sense, the Georgian military, fi- in fact, fired the first shots. But there were certainly provocations leading up to that. Again, on both sides, hard to uh, untie these knots. But the Russians moved in, again, similarly to what they did in the Donbass. In Ukraine's case, they sort of sent weapons, advisors, military assistance. They eventually participated in, you know, sort of uh, expelling ethnic Georgian populations from these two regions. Uh, They established bases there. And, you know, that's been also a frozen, basically, conflict ever since, although Georgia has moved away from Saakashvili, who's now in prison, actually, in Georgia. And the Georgian government today is on a little more cordial terms with Russia, although the population of Georgia, my impression is, tends to be still fairly irritated with the Russians, let's say. So how does that does, does that provide lessons to what's happening now? Does that indicate anything? Are the situations um, meaningfully comparable or not really? My opinion is the implication that one could draw from the Georgian situation is that Putin's government, I guess, takes a long view of these kinds of things. They've been willing to let 
this situation in Georgia fester. They know that because of the territorial disputes in Abkhazia and, and, and South Ossetia, that Georgia isn't going to join NATO. You know, that was that was talk at one time that, you know, NATO could even expand into the Caucasus. That's not going to happen with these open territorial disputes on Georgian soil. And, you know, Russia has the means to affect Georgian politics anytime it wants to because of the relationships it has with these two autonomous regions. And that's similar to the relationship that it has with the Donbass. There are two actual political entities there. There's the Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republics. And, you know, those entities, like what what you see in Georgia, give the Russians a line or a, a lever with which to destabilize Ukraine if they want to. And certainly, ensure if Crimea wasn't already doing that, they ensure that Ukraine is not going to be a candidate for membership uh, in NATO if that is, in fact, the, the main concern that Russia has. But they did this without the kind of full-scale invasion that people are talking about with respect to Ukraine. They didn't seize, you know, Tbilisi. They didn't, you know, replace the Georgian government. They didn't do any of the things that people are talking about with respect to Ukraine, that you're going to have a line of Russian tanks uh, making a beeline for Kiev to impose a, a new government. To me, that precedent speaks to the fact that a Ukraine invasion of the sort that people are talking about is is not all that likely. But again, I mean, I'm, I'm speculating, but it's strange to me that this gets held up as an example of, you know, what Russia might do by people who are proposing that Russia is going to invade full bore, because that's not what happened in Georgia. And if that's the model that you're looking for, it already exists in Ukraine, and the Russians really don't need to do anything else. Okay. Actually, I have a couple more questions just because I think okay. people need to know a couple of things. So first, could you maybe try to just situate Putin domestically? Because my understanding is that he's presented in the West as this sort of autocratic leader who has sort of like a Hitler-esque character in his control over the executive. Um, but in actuality, he is actually the head of, of more of a small group of oligarchs. And within this group, there's differences on how, uh, quote-unquote, aggressive Russia should be toward the West. And my understanding was that in the last few years, Putin has actually been on the less aggressive side of that equation. Is that correct? And maybe you could just situate Putin in terms of his domestic political situation. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, he certainly doesn't have absolute control. I mean, we've seen protests in Russia against him, against his presidency that have, you know, I think been embarrassing for him, if nothing else, that he's had to sort of respond to. He has abided by the Russian constitution when necessary, for example, after his first two presidential terms. He didn't run for a third term, which he probably could have crammed through some constitutional changes. He's done that since then, but there's actually no indication yet that he's actually going to run for a third term. He's in his second term of his second presidency. And his Cleveland, his Cleveland yeah. years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Grover Cleveland, everyone. Yeah, that's, um, that's a reference to. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, he still operates according to a set of rules. There's, it's certainly an authoritarian state. I'm not going to argue with that. Oh, of course. Uh, it's of not course. completely arbitrary, though. And yes, you're right. Putin exists as the sort of 
bagman, frontman, nexus, whatever. I mean, member of, leader of, you know, you get different accounts of this, but of a, a, of the Russian oligarchy. These are the, the folks who made out really well in the 90s when uh, the Russian economy was picked apart for scraps and have a lot of money, people who control major industries, the gas industry, the, you know, the energy sector more broadly, arms, you know, the, the sort of uh, private military contractor world. You know, any, anything that Russia is doing that, that makes money is, you know, you can trace it to one of these guys or more, one or more of these guys. And yeah, I mean, look, all this cadre, this group of oligarchs, they have different ideas about how to engage with the West. Many of them have a lot of money invested in the West. They have money invested in real estate in London, in, in the U.S., across Europe. They have money stashed in banks, a lot of them in London. So they, they have a lot of engagement with the West. They're very West-facing in a financial sense. On the other hand, you have a number of people in that cadre who I think are still very angry about what happened with the fall of the Soviet Union and the loss of prestige and Russia's kind of reduction at the hands of the Chicago boys. I mean, this is, you know, what they they believe, and there's some truth to it, at the hands of sort of U.S. economic planners coming in and taking apart the Russian economy and it, to such a degree that, you know, the population dropped, life expectancy dropped, you know, it's just terrible. Alcoholism went uh, up, outcomes, I believe. Alcoholism yeah. shot through the roof, yes. So, you know, there is still a sense that this is a country that was humiliated at the end of the Cold War, and you have uh, among the elite, uh, even some of the ones who have a fair amount of vulnerability to, let's say, having assets frozen or uh, sanctions placed on them in the West, a desire to get back to a time when Russia was a great power. And that's tied up with things like Russian nationalism. I don't want to get into like, you know, analyzing yeah, the, the Russian soul too, or yeah. whatever. I mean, it's yeah, just no, very let's messy. Avoid and, that. But, no. but Ukraine plays into a lot of that stuff in a, in a very deep way. So there's sentiment on both sides of this. And I think Putin is does have to be accountable to a domestic constituency. It's not like he's operating, you know, at, at his own discretion. He's not Emperor Putin or, or anything like that. So, yeah, you're, you're right. It's, it's more complicated. But am I right to have said that for, like, it, when we're talking about Syria, he was actually on the more conciliatory end of things, or is that a misunderstanding? And that it seems he's, he's moving to a more aggressive position in the last year or so. Is that incorrect? Uh, I, it's hard to say, right? I mean, Syria was was somewhat aggressive. The Russians in different regions have played different roles. I mean, he, Putin stepped in to, to assist and protect, really, Bashar al-Assad at a time when Bashar al-Assad was like the new Hitler. I mean, you know, he sort of replaced uh, Saddam Hussein or, or whomever as the, the sort of new bad guy, new boogeyman for the West. I mean, that was somewhat aggressive. On the other hand, Russia has worked with the United States on things like negotiating the Iran nuclear deal. They've certainly worked together. I think there's indications that they won't talk about very much that they've worked together to target Islamic State cells and units uh, in Syria, even where there's been sort of this tension about, you know, which direction the country's going to go. So, I mean, I think there are areas where Russia and the United States or Russia and the West more broadly do work together. It's, it's a pragmatic relationship in some ways. But yeah, I, I mean, I think you could say he's adopted a little bit more hostile position, probably in the wake of 
the Georgian War in 2008 because the United States came out very strongly, sort of, you know, rhetorically and, you know, in terms of supporting Georgia. And I think that was probably the start of a, a, a breakdown that's been going on since then in the relationship between Russia and the United States. The Trump years, I mean, we could talk about whether Trump was truly enthralled to Vladimir Putin or not, but they did seem to get along with one another on a personal level, and that helped to some degree. But even during the Trump years, the United States was slapping sanction after sanction on Russia. So, you know, you can hardly say that things were, the relationship was good. I wouldn't put the onus all on Putin, though. I wouldn't say it's entirely Putin's doing that this relationship has turned in a more hostile direction. I think the United States has given as much as it's taken in that respect. And so let's end on this question. What do you think Russia wants from the perspective of geopolitics. I think you you suggested, and I and many would agree, that it's basically become a, a quote-unquote middle power. It's not really a great power, though it has the nuclear weapons of a great power, so that complicates things. But also middle powers have nukes, including Britain, France, Israel, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So what do you think that Putin, the oligarchs, Russia, uh, so-called, what does it want what do they want in the region? Is this the, just the traditional Russia wants a security buffer because of the last 200 plus years of history, fearing land invasion? Is it because it wants to you know, reassert prestige on the international stage? From just a pure geopolitics, we're playing risk perspective. What do you think Russia actually wants here? I mean, the immediate thing that I think they want is to iron out a broad European security agreement. And I know when you start to talk about this stuff and like take what Russia says seriously and actually assume that they mean what they say, you get accused of being an apologist. Or when you talk about Russia wanting kind of assurances in its sphere of influence, that's taken to mean that you're saying it's okay for nations to have a sphere of influence, which I'm not doing any of those things. No, in an ideal world, that wouldn't happen. I think it's fair to say. I, I think that we can Take them, you know, when they say what they're concerned about is Ukraine joining NATO and positioning offensive or potentially offensive NATO military assets in Ukraine, when they say that that's their primary concern, I think that we can probably take them at their word there. I don't think they're trying to to obfuscate some, you know, desire to con. I don't like I don't think Vladimir Putin is is the new Napoleon or the new Hitler. I don't think he's trying to sweep his forces over Europe. So I think one of the things that could be done here uh, vis-a-vis finding a way out of this crisis is to have an actual discussion about a, a, an overarching European security agreement. This is something that is uh, anathema to the United States because it could mean that the U.S. isn't Europe's parent anymore. I mean, I say that laughing, but that's the way a lot of U.S. thinkers talk about Britain and France and Germany as though they're America's children. And the relationship is somewhat akin to that. But if you had, you know, sort of negotiations among European states about how to structure a security relationship that satisfied everybody's concerns, then that that could get out of hand. That could get out of American hands. I think it's the same reason why Russia was never invited to join NATO, even though there was some interest on the part of both Boris Yeltsin and an early Vladimir Putin early on in his presidency about potentially joining. That was shot down very quickly. And so, you know, I think that's one way to get out of this is to to say, let's have this conversation. Let's have a, a meaningful conversation, bring everybody to the table and discuss what an effective 
European security situation would look like. That's the immediate concern. The 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 deeper issues, yeah, I mean, you talk about Russia being a, a middling power that has a lot of nukes. I mean, the difference between Russia and other middling powers with nukes, as you said, Israel, uh, the UK, and France. Israel and the UK have sort of openly kind of acquiesced to the fact that they are the junior partners in a relationship with the United States, although Israel kind of dictates uh, policy in a way that I, I find uh, interesting sometimes. France chafes at that a little bit, but they're still part of the security architecture of NATO and and even the EU that is basically, you know, subordinate to the United States. Uh, Russia is different in that it doesn't just have nukes, it has a lot of nukes, and it doesn't have a big brother kind of a relationship with anybody. The Russians still view themselves as a standalone great power, great power in waiting, or great power would be great power, I don't know how you want to term it, but as a country that should be at the table with the biggest players in the world, should be at the table with China and the United States and the EU as, you know, as big issues issues are being discussed. So how much do you want to feed into that and and sort of kind of give them what they want on that regard? I don't know. But I do think you could start to affect the situation in Ukraine short of war, short of these sort of devastating sanctions that everybody keeps promising to put on Russia that will probably hit the Russian people harder than anything. One thing that you could do is to, you know, listen to what the Russians are actually saying and try to address the concerns that they're articulating. And, and the way to do that, I think, is is through a European-led European security process to, to negotiate some arrangements, some agreements, some, you know, if not quite treaties, then some kind of architecture for the continent that satisfies, hopefully, everybody's interests. Well, Derek, thank you so much. Um, everyone, this has been a special uh, on Ukraine from American Prestige. If you like what we're doing, please like, um, subscribe to our Patreon, and share uh, with everyone so that they can get the best heterodox foreign policy analysis around. Derek, thank you so much for your knowledge and insights, and everyone will see you next week. Hopefully we won't be at war by then, but yeah, thanks, Danny. Hopefully we won't be at war. (laughs) Bye. Thanks, everybody.